somebody that uh, I have found while I've been doing my own in-depth research about this is a guy named Tim Larkin. Tim Larkin, uh, I have a book right here that he recommended called Meditations on Violence. And this is by a guy named, let me see, this is a guy by, uh, by a guy named Rory Miller. And Rory Miller is a corrections officer. He did security in Iraq, interrogations, there's a whole nine. But him and Tim Larkin have, have a, a very good relationship. They have several podcasts that they've done together. And this is the kind of concepts they talk about is, hey, you need to have a very real impression of what violence is because it's not the movie violence it's not the traditional martial arts it's not the bruce lee it's not the the jet lee jackie chan type stuff violence is is nasty violence is aggressive violence is bad violence has psychological aspects whether you're the winner or the loser of the scenario they talk about this spectrum of when would you be able to utilize a lethal technique and they talk about what if it was a kid with a knife, right? A kid with a knife can be very dangerous. So at what point are you willing to use lethal self-defense to stop that kid with a knife? Or do you need to? What about a pregnant woman with a gun, but she's mugging you, right? Like there's this whole situational concept to it that people don't think about. They just think, oh, punch, kick, grab, throw. That's nowhere near where we need to start with this conversation. So if you want to go farther into this, I'll, I want to do more podcasts about the concept of violence, the concept of self-defense and just martial arts in general in our culture and kind of understand what they are. Because remember, this whole wake the monster thing is about being a very capable individual. And, and, and my primary focus is being a very capable man, because I think that we need capable men to exist. We need capable women too, as well. I did, I did a whole podcast about strong women being a critical aspect of society, right? But right now, capable men is my is my focus here. So if you want to know more about it, go go search Tim Larkin on YouTube. Not a, a a promo plug or anything like that. I just think he has fantastic information that you you can go and, and figure out or go and listen to. The majority of the instructors who are going to deliver this stuff to you, the majority of instructors who are going to teach you these things, they haven't used it in real life. They haven't applied these techniques in real life. And that was something that I was searching for when I went to my last school. I, I, I wanted, I had spent so much of my life in the theory of self-defense and the theory of martial arts. I had beautiful kicks, right? For, um, I mean, I'm tooting my own horn right now, right? But I loved kicking. So the spin kicks, the jump kicks, the, 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 the twist kicks, all that kind of stuff. I had beautiful kicks, but the application wasn't realistic. I'm not going to go do a 720 hook kick when I'm trying to fight somebody because, you know, I'm trying to protect my wife or my daughter or something. Like that. It, it, it's not going to happen, right? So I wanted to find a place that I could take myself out of theory and go on application. And so there was a, a instructor within the association that I was there. He actually ran the association. His name was Grandmaster Drum. And his head instructor at the school that he owned was Master Jay Cruz. And Master Jay Cruz is a world champion Muay Thai competitor. He had been since he was like 13 years old. And, you know, he's in his, in his late 30s now. But I wanted to 
find the realism in all this. And so I went there and I said, look, I would love to come on and teach with you. I also want to take a fight because I want to know how real this is. I want to know how real everything I've been doing is. And so they let me come on. They let me become an instructor, taught me the ropes. It's traditional school. Um, so even within there, every working relationship has agree and disagree moments. And so I was always questioning, 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 and, and listening to the rationale, listening to the understanding of why this technique, why this, why that, outside of just the traditional. If, if I'm teaching somebody who wants more than just spiritual or fitness, how am I rationalizing these techniques to myself to teach them and to them to believe that it's going to work, right? So we were always honing and, and blending and, and everything like this. So my relationship with, with, with Jay was fantastic because of the fact that when it came to martial arts, we could kind of challenge our understanding of things. And, you know, if I brought up something from a military aspect or a, or a, or a combat or a, a street-level type scenario, Jay would be able to take that in and either explain to me how, hey, we are matching this, this is how, or, you know, make small little changes to the way we explain something or the way we addressed a specific technique so that it became more real world, more more reality based. You know, so it was a great relationship there. <laughs> but all my other instructors leading up to that were not people that applied this stuff in real life you know i mean jay was a uh like i said world muay thai fighter he also grew up in the inner city so he had to utilize the stuff that he had grown up learning to take care of himself take care of his friends his family all that kind of thing and then grandmaster drum who was both of our instructors at that point was a, a marine in the 70s so and that's where he learned his martial arts so he got to have realistic applications of it as well it was cool because I found people who had utilized these things in real life. But that is not the norm. The majority of schools you go to, it is going to be all theory. If you ask, if, the, if a student asks the instructor, you know, have you ever been in a fight? The instructor is going to say something along the lines of, no, what martial arts really taught me is how to avoid fights. Right, what martial arts really taught me is how to walk away, is how to have confidence to not have to fight. You know, and, and all those things are true and good and strong characteristics of martial arts, but they are also telling the truth in the fact that, hey, the physical aspect of it, I don't know if it really works because I haven't tested it. I haven't tried it. I haven't had to utilize the physical thing. So if you get stuck in a situation where you can't walk away, where you've used your martial arts, your verbal jujitsu, and you weren't able to talk your way out of a fight or find an escape route. I don't know if what I taught you is going to work now. The majority of schools you go to, that's going to be the reality. I've been in several of them. And that's why these are questions that you need to be asking when you go in to put yourself into a class or to put your children into that school. Because if those are questions that they can't answer or they dance around, not only are you 
if you're there for self-defense and learning to fight, are you in the wrong place? But you're also dealing with a lack of integrity in a martial arts instructor. Integrity is normally the number one core value in the majority of martial arts schools. So if you can't even uphold number one, the first thing you say every day, then why should I allow you to be teaching and being part of the growth of my child or myself, right? So it's very important that when you think about where you're going to go, you need to find the people who do it, who have had to, to experience it, right? Look for the schools that are owned by vets. Look for the schools that are owned by police officers or, you know, even firefighters or paramedics. They're all going to have interactions with violence. Correctional officers, you know, security guards, all of those people deal with violence on a spectrum. So they're all going to have a better understanding of it than somebody who got put into martial arts when they were three years old and it just became the thing that it was their hobby that they enjoyed. And then when they turned 12 years old, they got to start teaching the little kids class. And then eventually that became their part-time job. And then they became an adult and it was their full-time job. And then they became a school owner. Uh, it's a very cushy life to go and teach violence. It, it, it's, it doesn't coincide with really understanding what you're teaching on that level. And you can teach spiritual, the philosophical, all that other kind of, all those other beautiful aspects of martial arts. But when it comes to, hey, violence is going to occur, I need to know that these techniques are secure in realistic foundation. I'm going to be able to apply them and save my life. Those people are not the people that you should be looking for. You should be looking for the real people who have dealt with violence in their in their life, in their job. They came to martial arts because they needed it for something else. One of the questions that that I've always loved when teaching self-defense is, what if? Right? And especially the kids. The kids love asking this. And when you're a new instructor, it's very intimidating because you're put on the spot to react immediately. And if it's a kid's class, you're not just reacting to the kid, but you're also reacting in front of the kid's parents. So you're literally selling to the kid's parents in that moment. Hey, this is real. I meant it when I said it. Now I'm going to show you. So if I teach a hip throw, right? Get low, boom, get your center of gravity below theirs, rise, toss, drop them. Then the kid says, well, what if they grab your collar as you're picking them up? Right? Then what do you do? Well, now the technique is changing because they're probably going to pull you down to the ground as well. So you need to come up with, okay, listen, what ifs always exist? What ifs are the reality of self-defense? So you start running through the system of techniques or, hey, then you can move into this or then you can move into that or then you can move into this next thing. But it's important to understand the what if, if you're a martial arts instructor and you're teaching self-defense, you need to live in what if. You need to accept the what if you need to invite the what if everything about a violent encounter is what if because you don't get to choose what the other person does you only choose what you do everything else is a reaction to that so that that what if question needs to be your favorite question and you need to be very well versed in responding to it which means you need to be drilling this all the time too because it doesn't just stop with the kid on the floor. If you get stumped on a what if by a five-year-old, that five-year-old's mom and dad are going to see that, and then they're going to be looking somewhere else 
for a real school and a real instructor. The one thing I want to say before I start talking about how to find a good school, you know, something that, that my instructor, Grandmaster Drum, kind of explained to us when, when we talk about, there's a conversation in martial arts about, is there a, a better style? Right? Is, there, is there a dominant style in martial arts? And when it comes to the sport aspect of it, you can find dominant styles, but they're all based around a rule set. So if you're in to mix martial arts, grapplers are generally going to dominate stand-up striker-type fighters. So your wrestlers, your jujitsu practitioners, your sambo, you know those Khabib-type guys, those uh, Tony Ferguson, Michael Chandler, like all those wrestling-based people, uh, Kamaru Usman, those guys, George St. Pierre, they're going to have a easier time adapting to the sport because they have that body control, that physical control. They can take somebody down and hold them there if they need to and score points and win rounds. But again, that's based around a rule set, right? Now, if we're in a, a self-defense situation, it shifts a little bit because, first of all, fights start standing, right? Now, let's say you have a wrestler who's going to defend himself with his wrestling technique. Well, that's fine. He's going to take me down. Okay, cool. However, comma, my self-defense does not just stop at my physical abilities, right? I have what we call EDC, everyday carry. Millions of Americans across the country do. It's our Second Amendment right. So I carry a gun on me everywhere that the law doesn't make me a felon. I also carry a knife. So if we're wrestling and I have decided that, hey, this scenario is getting to a point where I need to elevate my level of aggression to protect my life or my family's life, I'm going to move to an alternative weapon. Now his wrestling is pretty much useless, right? That's sport martial arts versus self-defense for preservation of life. You know, and I'm not going to cover gun and all that other kind of stuff, like the, the gun and the knife and what to carry, how to carry, how to shoot, when to shoot, all that kind of, I'm not talking about that here. Well, I want to focus on these seminars and these self-defense classes and what a good school actually is. But you, that's a concept you need to understand. You know, when I, was in, when I was in school and people would find out I was a martial artist, they would always say, oh, do a move, right? If you grew up in martial arts, everybody would, oh, do a move, do a kick, do something cool. And so growing up, I had kicks that were cool. I had 540s, 720s, you know, butterfly twit, all that kind of stuff. Like, those are cool things to do. And it would get like, oh, that's awesome, right? But then you have that reputation that you got to play with again, too, because, oh, I did a kick. Well, now somebody wants to challenge me. And when I was a kid, mixed martial arts wasn't really a thing. UFC wasn't a thing. Everybody was boxing because that was still the, the dominant combat sport. So if I did get into a fight, somebody would be like, oh, what are you going to do, kick me? Well, yes. Yes, I am going to kick you because it's a weapon that I have, right? And you get looked at sideways if you were a kicker. Today, it's like, I'm going to kick you because everybody's kicking now. But that spectrum of, of defense has to exist, and or that spectrum of, of violence exists. And if I'm fighting a wrestler, wrestling is not my dominant skill set. And even if it is, maybe that person is an all-American wrestler, an Olympic wrestler, and I just wrestled in high school or something along those lines. So when they start dominating me, I am going to move to my next 
highest level of violence to protect myself, to preserve my life, to protect my family. Now wrestling is, is irrelevant, right? Great in the ring, but irrelevant when the world, you know, the game changes outside. When I've decided I've had enough and I want to elevate this to protect me. Or, hey, this got out of hand and I need to do something or else I'm going to lose my life. You know what I mean? That's the self-defense conversation. It's an uncomfortable topic for many people going to martial arts schools, for traditional martial arts schools. Even in MMA schools, right? Like, those guys are very good at violence within a rule set. There isn't a rule set outside. It's not to say, like, oh, street fighters are, are, that's not my point, right? My point is there isn't a rule set. You cannot have an expectation of a fair fight in violence. That's not a thing. Preservation of life has no fairness to it. You'll, you'll hash all that out in court later, which is my point of understanding rules and regulations before you decide that violence is going to be your option. That's the part of the spectrum. Dominant style is, is relative to your arena. <coughs> but my point was, something Grandmaster Drum would say is, he would ask you a question. He'd be like, all right, so I'm going to put you in an armbar. Okay, cool. And he'd do a simple like wrist lock armbar. And he'd say, who invented this technique? What style invented this technique? And you could say Hapkido, you could say Jiu-Jitsu has an armbar, you could say Japanese Jiu-Jitsu, you could say Kung Fu had it, right? And Pankration, whatever. And the answer is nobody knows because every style has a version of an armbar, right? So his argument was that well, God invented it because God invented your arm to move one way and not the other. So then... God determined that if I do this, it hurts. God stylus, right? The, the, the idea is that there's no dominant style. It's about the it's about the practitioner. So that argument stays true regardless across the board of this. The important thing is the practitioner, not necessarily what specific style you're in. So with that being said, how do you find a good school? The first thing you need to do is you need to determine why you want to train martial arts. Why are you walking in there? Why, or, or if you're a parent putting your kids in there, why do you want your kids to take martial arts classes? Because you can get paired up in the wrong place very, very easily. And you'll get stuck because a lot of schools have contracts and buyouts and, and, and no cancellations and all that kind of stuff. So the first thing you need to determine is why are we here? Right now, my parents put me in martial arts when I was 11 years old, and it was to deal with emotion and anger issues and, and things of that nature. I originally needed martial arts as an outlet. I didn't need it originally for learning violence. I actually needed it to control my, my I guess, violent urges, right? So the school that we picked was more based around sport, enjoyment, philosophical type environment, kata, hyung forms, very mind-body unifying type styles. At the time, it was good for me, but it was still martial arts, right? So I still had that, that hubris of being a black belt when I eventually got there, right? So I had that, that hubris of being a black belt a little bit. And when it came to the actual application of technique, it was lacking because of the, what the schools 
purpose was, the school used martial arts as an engine to teach life lessons. That's, that's a different purpose, right? So that's a spiritual or a physical health right? or an emotional health, something along those lines, which are fantastic reasons to take martial arts. And traditional schools are great for that. Kids coming from broken homes, hey, I just want them to learn how to how to deal with emotions. I don't like the I don't like the idea of control emotions because right? I don't want to subdue them. I want to learn how to live with them. I want to learn how to deal with the emotions. You don't want to avoid emotion. You want to have emotion, and you want to deal with it. And traditional martial arts schools are fantastic for that because they don't use martial arts primarily to teach the violence. They use martial arts as the engine to teach life skills. So if that's what you're looking for, then the majority of traditional martial arts schools are going to be fantastic for you because they're all happy, high five. You always got to have a good attitude. You can't come in and say, oh, today was okay. You got to say today was was great, right? Good isn't okay or good's not acceptable. It's got to be great, excellent, fantastic, positive mindset at all times kind of stuff, right? But understand your trade-off is the skilled violence. You have pretty kicks, you have good forms, but you might not be sparring as much. You might not be learning how to take punches, how to take kicks, how to deliver punches and kicks, how to have the cardio base while in, <coughs> how to have the cardio base while in a fight, as opposed to, you know, just general cardio, general health. If you want that, you need to start looking closer towards your MMA and your UFC schools, your mixed martial arts, your Brazilian jiu-jitsu, those type of things. Those schools, while they still have some of those philosophical, spiritual type lessons that they teach, they are more focused on building you out as an athlete, right? But a combat sports athlete. So they're going to teach you violence, they're going to teach you punches and kicks. They're going to teach you proper technique. They're going to teach you how to take a punch. They're going to teach you how to deliver a punch. They're going to teach you how to interact in that way within a rule set. So that's a, that's your limiting factor in mixed martial arts and Brazilian jiu-jitsu schools is they're going to teach you those violence skills within the rule set of their sport. Brazilian jiu-jitsu has a rule set. MMA has a rule set. Muay Thai, kickboxing, glory, K1, all that, they all have different rule sets that, that change what you can and cannot do. Right? So again, you have a limiting principle there. And then if you want self-defense, you need to, if you want that real-world application of self-defense, you need to find the schools that are run by people who have had to utilize these experiences in their line of work. On a, on, a, on, a, on a daily basis. You need to find correctional officers that run schools. You need to find police officers. You need to find previous military, previ you know, retired law enforcement, uh, you know, FBI, special agents, people like that. You need to find those people and they'll be the ones that'll be able to deliver the real world-based self-defense for you. A couple other things to look for. Go into a school. Don't just go in one time. Right? Go in and just sit in the lobby. I don't go up to the front desk and say, hi, I'm interested in taking classes because they're going to put somebody on you. They're going to give you their spiel. The majority of schools all run off of scripts, whether you're on the phone or walking through the door. They have a script. They have a set. They have a, a, a tree 
of responses to give you based off of what you tell them, right? They're going to ask you what you're coming in for. Maybe they'll have a go-kart at the front. And that's all them figuring out how to sell you on their program. What I would do is I would go in and I would just sit in the back of the room where all the other parents are sitting, watching class, where the spectators are sitting, and just watch class. Whatever class you want to take, right? So if you're an adult and you want to take classes for yourself, don't go in and watch the three to five-year-old class. Go in and watch the adult class. Right? If you're there for your kids, go and watch the class for whatever group of kids you are. You you want to you want to see, right? You want to see a seven-year-old? Go make sure you see the seven-year-old class. And don't just watch the beginner class either. Watch the beginner class, and then go watch the advanced class. Go watch the black belt class, because what that's going to allow you to do is it's going to allow you to see if they're focused on things that you want to have focus on. If you want behavior improvement for your children and you go watch the beginner class and you got the kids going crazy because they're brand new, but then you go to the black belt class and you got a bunch of knuckleheads that are still getting yelled at, is that school focused on the thing that you want, right? If you want your kid to be an athlete on the sport karate circuit, go watch the beginner class and see what they're focused on. Are they very heavy on technique and stances? And then go watch the black belt class and see if those kids are doing the things that you see happen on YouTube. You can't just pick a school based off of walking into one school, listening to an instructor, and then saying, okay, cool, this is it. Because all pitches in martial arts schools are based off of an emotional response by the buyer. All right. Martial arts is a luxury buy. Martial art, taking martial arts lessons is not a, a need-based purchase. It's not groceries. It's not your house. It's not your electric bill, right? It's not the things that you must put money out to survive. It's a leisure. It's an extra. Leisure purchases are based off of your emotion, right? I want this car because it's fancy and it's going to make me feel good, right? I want this watch because it's going to look good in my suit and it's going to impress my boss. Those are all like leisure type things. Martial arts is the same way, right? Vacations are, are leisure. I want to go to Cancun because, oh, it's going to make me feel so good. That's emotion. So martial arts schools are very, very well-versed in drawing out the emotion, the positive emotion, positive emotional reaction to you being in their school. If you let that happen, then you're going to walk into a school one time, you're going to sit down with the instructor, hear the pitch, they'll put you through a couple private lessons to get that emotional buy-in of feeling good, get those endorphins running. And then after one of those really good high endorphin workouts, they're going to bring you in the office and they're going to present you with the numbers, right? That's, they're not trying to trap you. They are trying to seize on the good feeling that they gave you, which is fair. I mean, that's the sales pitch of that industry, right? But you as a buyer need to be aware of that because we shouldn't be making purchases based off emotion. We need to be making purchases based off of logic. Why are you taking martial arts classes? Why are you looking for that? Why do you want your kid in there? Why do you want you in there? You can't get that by talking to the instructor. They're all, they all have self-interest in you being there because it raises their bottom line. You only get that from being a fly on the wall. So like I said, to pick your martial arts school, the best thing to do is to go and just sit in the audience, watch a class, watch a beginner class, watch the adult, or, you know, watch the beginner class, watch the advanced class so that you can see the progression of their students 
Another thing to keep in mind is pay attention to who the instructors are of those classes, okay? Because like I mentioned earlier, you're going to have a lot of traditional schools where you're going to have the kid who started as a three-year-old and he's been with that school for 15 years and he's now 18, but he's that went from being his hobby to being a thing that he got to be, you know, assist the head instructor and then it became a part-time job and then it became a full-time job and now he's the school owner, right? So he's never experienced anything outside of that. What happens a lot of times is that when that kid is like 12 years old, that kid will start teaching like teenage teen classes, right? Because he will have he or she will have gotten their black belt, and they'll start teaching the teen classes, and then they'll start teaching the adult classes. And as an adult, again, why are you here, right? Now, if if for me, if I am in a class and I want I want to deal with the grown up problems of my day, and standing in front of me is some 16 year old kid who has a biology assignment due after he teaches me this class, like how much credibility can I have? How much faith can I have that that person understands what my feelings are in this class? Right? So that's another thing that I say that you want to pay attention to is if you're the adult, watch the adult classes. If you are there for your kids, even watch the adult classes and see who is delivering the instruction in those classes. It it should not be the 12 and, and 13 year olds, you know, it should be the adults, it should be somebody who is more understanding of what those people are experiencing. Now, a lot of times what you're going to have is teens and adults are going to be blended into a class together, especially in traditional schools, because of the fact that that's normally their smaller enrollment group. So they just don't have the bodies to, to make it worth splitting that class up. So you have some leeway, like, okay, can it be a 17-year-old? Can it be a 16-year-old, an 18-year-old, that kind of thing? And you got to kind of make that personal choice, right? But you shouldn't be picking schools where the 12-year-old is teaching the 40-year-old how to do hip throws or or how to do martial arts techniques or how to deal with emotion or how to meditate because they don't have the same experience. They don't they, they can't fathom what that 40-year-old man or 40-year-old woman coming off that long day of work just trying to get some relief and trying to get some understanding in their life. And the 12 year old kid cannot, they can't fathom what we deal with as, as grown men and women. And that being said, uh, being a martial arts instructor for a kid is a great first time, uh, a part-time job, high school job, right? But a good school is going to be aware of that and say, okay, cool. When you're 14, you know, I can teach, I can let you teach my three to five year olds. I can let you teach my seven to 10 year olds. I can let you assist with my, my group that's around your age, you know, but once they get to your age and older, you should not be the instructor. The last thing when it comes to looking for a martial arts school, this is kind of like a pet peeve of mine, but again, it goes to the, the total pitch of how martial arts schools bring you in as a student. They want it to be emotional, not logical because there's no logic behind picking up martial arts. There's very little, right? Very rarely is there just sound, hey, this is a logical purchase for my budget kind of thing. You know, this is always emotional. It's something I want to do. It's something that makes me happy kind of stuff. Um, schools normally won't tell you their price over the phone. It's it's becoming uh, less of a taboo nowadays, but schools normally won't tell you their monthly rate over the phone because of the fact that if they just tell you the monthly rate, you're shopping around on price, then you're just going to go and pick the cheapest one and that's it, right? So why 
should they tell you and then just lose the chance at you altogether. Instead, they'll try and get you to come in so that you can have a conversation, come in and try a class, come in and, you know, something along those lines. So what a lot of them do is they do like a, oh, our current promotion right now is six weeks for $69 or four weeks for 49 or something along those lines. And that, that at least gets you, you know, in the door, gets you signed up for a short term, no commitment. And then they eventually they push you into, you know, okay, now we're 180 a month for blah, blah, blah. And you're like, well, wait a second, that's triple, you know? So it, it's, it's not a huge deal. I just, I would prefer, I think it's a better business practice to be transparent, um, especially when you'll have some traditional schools that will charge you like two and $300 a month for, you know, traditional martial arts, Taekwondo, something, something basic where you're not really, you know, you're there for, for the non self-defense aspects of martial arts you're there for the the mental the spiritual the behavioral for the kid and all that kind of stuff and they'll charge two and three hundred dollars a month because they say oh this is this is the value of me as an instructor it's like okay cool but then i can go to the mma school that's producing like ufc quality fighters and they charge you 120 a month for all of their available classes so for 120 a month you can go learn muay thai kickboxing boxing wrestling jujitsu sambo and you know whatever else they have there for half or or you know 60% of the price so it's you know pet peeve of mine but that's why I think about it to wrap this up because I've been going for a while on this and this is something that I could spend days and days and days talking about but self-defense seminars just they're not they're not valuable I think the majority of schools that are producing them are doing a disservice and actually, I don't want to say they're putting people at risk, right? But they are building that, that faint confidence. They're building that, that hubris in people that could eventually lead to them putting themselves in a danger. Remember that F3 response, that fight, flight, or freeze. Well, if you're, if your default is flight, but then I teach you some skills that makes you think fight and then you freeze because you've reached the end of the skill because you haven't practiced it enough or we didn't teach you a series to get to the finishing move or something along those lines and you freeze and now i just put you in harm's way as an instructor you know so self-defense and women's self-defense seminars they're 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 built as recruitment tools they are they are not there to actually benefit the women or benefit the students you know it gives you a it gives you a a, a fake feeling of confidence and i i can see where there's benefits to that right hey i'm not going to go out and fight but i just want to feel better about myself so i'm going to learn some self-defense and that's fine i understand that and that can be beneficial to people if they understand that that limit is there but the majority of the time you know that it's the idea of these seminars to be a recruitment tool not to be a tool that actually teaches you self-defense because as i mentioned before the, the most critical aspect of self-defense is situational awareness. And that's something that's just not covered at all in most seminars. And then the ones that it does, it's absolutely done a disservice in the, the depth of how it is covered. All right. So that's it for this podcast. I know it was a long one, but there's a lot of really good information in here. I hope you had the time to, to sit down, maybe watch this in pieces. Um, if you couldn't watch it the whole way through in one shot, 
But thank you for stopping by. Thank you for sticking along with me. I appreciate you coming through. If you enjoyed it, if you like something out of the podcast, let me know. Leave a review. Let me know in the comments on YouTube. Send me a DM on Instagram at Wake the Monster or over on Twitter at Wake the Monster One. Let me know what you think. Let me know what you want to hear in the future. I hope you all have a great day. Wake your monster. Peace.